This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With careful gaze of the Gregory, we focus on the order of Goetics. And then, with reflecting a different truth, we discuss surreal libraries. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. This time, we're talking about the Order of Goetics. So we're back on that order train, um, and we're talking about Goetics this time. Goetics are our summoners. They like demons and angels and creatures and all sorts of things. Um, who knows how much they like actually casting magic? That is a question that we'll talk about just a little bit. But hey, Scott, how's it going? How, what's it been, like two weeks? um it has been two of some unit of time (laughs) some unit of time um so goetics i was uh i was looking at these notes while i was talking about the exorcist and everything here seemed to line up with what i was talking about because goetics they summon creatures and it's not limited to just demons and devils they summon demons and angels and other strange creatures from beyond. So, this order is an interesting one. Uh, the previous orders that we've talked about, uh, the the Vances and the Makers, those are the only two, right? We haven't talked about others? The, those are the only two we've talked about so far. Okay. They both had uh, mini-games that Monty had discussed in the videos and also uh, wrote briefly about in the Kickstarter updates. Um, they had mini-games to... Uh, help them put together their magic. Goetics, they um, they don't have a mini game. Uh, at least they weren't called out as having a mini game for their magic, like Vance's and Makers did. So Vance's had this grid that they would put uh, put their spells on, and the grid represented their brain. And Makers had, uh, I guess it was kind of a mini game, but it was more of an optimization of your materials to create the artifacts and items that you wanted to and you would do stuff with that to make it easier or put in different features for your for your items uh goetics don't really have anything like that and as i was reading through the information on the goetics they didn't really have a whole lot uh, to talk about when it came to actual magic it seemed like they they do their business by summoning monsters or angels or demons uh, and making pacts with them in order to borrow power uh, in order to accomplish accomplish their ends. So, do you think they're going to have magic? Well, I think summoning is magic. But outside of summoning, because uh, summoning for everything seems like it might be a bit overkill. I mean, what if you just need to uh, tensor's floating disc something over to you? Um do you have to summon a demon to say, hey, hey, buddy, can you go and 
you know, walk that 15 feet and bring me that uh, jewel from across that chasm? Well, I think summoning a small disc-shaped demon that probably doesn't require a lot of control or negotiation uh, might be what such a, a summoning spell actually looks like. Oh, yeah, I guess that's one way to look at it. A, a disc creature? Well, I believe floating disc is a conjuration spell. And we can think of a lot of the conjuration spells as just being summoning of, of in this case, almost inanimate spirits to accomplish some goal. I suppose when you put it that way, I'm going to have to run through my, uh, my D&D books and take a look at all the conjuration spells and see what's in there. Because uh, I was really just looking at this as like, all right, let's summon some monsters and do something interesting. Uh, but one of the other things that they talk about in the updates is, you know, you can summon spirits. Uh, and you can talk to these spirits to get information from them or do other sorts of things. So one of the big things that you're going to be doing as a goetic, and I'm going to I'm going to put the like summoning a floating disc on the back burner for now uh, and just focus on the big stuff. Um, so the big stuff, the big things that you're going to be doing as a goetic will be making pacts with creatures that you summon. Uh, in order to use them to take care of something. Uh, you might be borrowing their power. You might be gleaning information from them. Uh, but negotiating pacts is the big thing that Goetics are going to be doing. So it seems like this is the mini game that Goetics are going to have, which is, hey, you're going to negotiate with the GM and you're going to come up with uh, you know, what you want to do and what you're willing to fork over in order to get it done uh, to this creature. Yeah, I would ha probably have the uh, player design the other side of that negotiation as well. So one, one of the ways I tend to implement summoning spells in Dungeons and Dragons and other things is that uh, if a character really wants to use summoning regularly, then have them summon the same thing repeatedly. And it's literally the same dire wolf or the same whatever. And so they develop a relationship with that specific entity. Well, it clearly works in this particular case that you, they may have pacts with particular entities that allow them access to those entities' powers or for the intercession of those entities uh, with particular needs and tasks. They may be in some sense delegating to these other powers uh, with a cost and with some of this negotiation. But the, the fun kind of narrative flavor for this might be the design of those demons and angels and other entities that the Goetic is uh, interacting with. Uh, yeah, and that was something that I had been thinking about. Since you're going to be summing up, summoning up these basically NPCs, uh, as a GM, that, that can be a bit cumbersome. So if you're going to be taking on that part of the equation uh, as the GM, uh, you're going to have to be coming up with NPCs on the fly. Um, perhaps they have a longstanding relationship with some sort of angel uh, that they summon down. And, you know, that, that takes a lot of that work, you know, out of the equation. But if you're looking at... Uh, building up NPC creatures to interact with the Goetic. Uh, I had a couple of ideas. So one thing that I've done just a couple of times now uh, is I use something called Story Cubes. Uh, are you familiar with those? I've seen several versions of them, yes. Yep, so I just have the the standard Rory Story Cubes. There will be a, a link in the show notes. Um, and the thing that I like about those is I'll, I, I 
I've pulled them out and you know thrown those dice on the table and said, all right, players, you're encountering this NPC. It seems like you want to get some sort of interaction out of here. It's like it's more than just a, hey, we're going to walk into a shop and buy some items uh, and negotiate with the the shopkeeper. So I, I threw these dice out and said, all right, players, let's take a look at these dice and let's brainstorm, uh, you know, the background and the personality for this NPC. So when I was doing that, uh, when I was putting this stuff together, I said, hey, uh, one idea for building up these creatures that the Goetic is going to run into is to you know, pull these story cubes in and sort of share the load with your players and say, all right, let's build this NPC that you're going to be negotiating a pact with and take it from there. Uh, another tool that I think would work pretty well would be uh, noisy person cards. So there was a Kickstarter for that uh, that wrapped up last year sometime, but I believe they have a print and play that you can pull down from their website. Uh, and there'll be a link in the show notes for that as well. Um, but these are just some tools that you can use as a GM to quickly build up interesting NPCs that you can sort of brainstorm, uh, you know, goals for them in order to make them a bit more interesting. Because if you're going to be negotiating pacts with strange creatures, it should be a bit more involved than just, all right, roll your dice. Did it work? Yes. Okay, let's go on. Also, built into the game, you have the Sooth deck. Uh, so I was thinking maybe pulling from the Sooth deck in order to help you get inspiration for what these creatures are supposed to be like might be something else that would be helpful. Yeah, it reminds me of a, of a product similar to that that I'm more familiar with called uh, uh, Non-Player Cards, uh, an NPC generator from Metal Weave Games. And I'll put a, a link to the Amazon uh, page for these in the notes. Uh, they have different decks, and you can so they, but they some of them will be really well suited for this. So they have decks of names, uh, that's fine. But there's also specific decks for personalities, uh, quirks, and goals. And so you can have those very targeted sorts of randomizers for generating whatever whoever is summoned by the goetic. Yeah, and if you're going to be you know, creating these NPCs for them to interact with. I think getting an interesting starting ground is is going to be something that's a lot of fun and useful. Um, so the pacts that uh, they're going to be negotiating for, there were some examples that Monty had, like, hey, maybe you're going to summon up a demon and you're going to take on the flesh of this warrior demon to help you out in a fight. Or maybe you're going to be getting a shield of light from an angel for protection. Um, so you're going to be summoning up these creatures in order to get abilities that do something you normally can't do. So this is, it sounds like this is how the Goetic's magic is going to work. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's going to be like, they're not going to cast magic outside of summoning creatures. Then again, maybe they can, who knows? <laughs> or it may look a lot like it. So they summon the spirit that gives them some item or some sort of ability to, you know, cast fireball. Uh, but yeah. it's actually the or, or they summon some demon that has fiery breath that looks a lot like fireball. Yeah, exactly. Um, another thing would be, you know, maybe you're summoning these demons uh, and then this is going to be a creature that you are going to run as part of whatever encounter you're involved with. So if, if you're getting into if you're, you know, spoiling for a fight 
you know, summon up a demon and here's the NPC stuff for this demon that you're going to be using in this encounter. Um, which, you know, that's that's pretty standard for uh, any other RPG like D&D that you have monsters in. So right. That, that, that's also the point where at most RPGs where you realize that the system breaks down. <laughs> in what way? Um, in most editions of D&D, the summoning, for example, either uh, creates woefully unbalanced characters or dramatically uh, slows down combat mm. because now you have more characters to take care of and one one player is controlling multiple characters and it, it, it can really reveal the uh, some of the seams and limitations of a, of a system particularly a combat system to have true con you know true summoning so uh Going along with negotiating for pacts, <clears throat> uh, Goetics are going to be characters who are going to have a lot of charisma. They're going to be interacting with their NPCs quite often. So they're going to need to be charming or they're going to have to have a lot of diplomacy or they're going to just need a lot of presence uh, in order to be intimidating enough to, to get their way. So for players, you might be you might be recommending uh, the Goetic class to people who like to talk with the DM, talk with the DM, well, the GM's uh, NPCs. You know, if you're looking for pets and things like that, this might not be exactly what you're thinking about. But if you're somebody who likes to interact with the other players and with the uh, NPCs that the GM makes up, like I could see this being the order that might suit you best. That's certainly the impression I got. <laughs> well, I think it is worth mentioning that there are some places in uh, literature and some uh, examples that one might look to for inspiration. I thought this was a good idea. Uh, you know, Maybe classically people think of Faust and Dr. Faustus as uh, examples in literature of, of demons being summoned and the bad things that happen because of it uh, related to the ambition usually, of the summoner. But there's also more uh, contemporary examples of you know, adventure fiction. Yeah, and the the only like more contemporary one that I could come up with off the top of my head was uh, the Dresden Files. Uh, Harry Dresden, he summons demons. I'm not sure if he does any other stuff. Oh, yeah, he summons ghosts every once in a while on accident, I think. Um, but there's a lot of stuff happening in there that is pretty interesting, especially how he, you know, interacts with, you know, the, the creatures that he summons into that circle. So in a very similar uh, series, the Iron Druid Chronicles, uh, there's uh, the, 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 na the main character doesn't, hasn't done any summoning that I've read. I've only read the first book, uh, but other characters around him certainly do. So the notion of magic working through the creation of portals to summon uh, usually is the bad guys who have this power. So they're summoning demons and nasty things uh, is, is very important. But one could flip that around. And I'm sure there uh, could be characters who focus on summoning good forces uh, or ordered forces or other non, you know, stereotypically demon demonic forces uh, mm -hmm. to accomplish their goals. Um, well, another another example would be uh, the magicians. I believe uh, they attempt to summon something, and it goes very wrong. 
I've only seen the first season of the TV show, uh, and uh, the one I can think of goes really, really, really wrong. Yes. Yes. But yeah, there's another contemporary example of... Uh, and The Magicians, I think, is a pretty good uh, source for, you know, surreal imagery and uh, events. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty neat show. Uh, and the, the second season has already started. It hasn't as of this recording, though. <laughs> it's it, it has it is probably restarted by the time you're hearing this. It's not started by the time we're recording this. You had you had me nervous there for a moment. No, nope, no, nope. we're we're still good. But listener, if you haven't seen it yet, well, you missed out. <laughs> from where we're recording in the actuality, it has not happened yet. But from where you were hearing it in the actuality, it likely has started. Along with uh, the Expanse, which you should also be watching, even has nothing to do with surrealism, just because it's that good. Uh, yeah, I need to watch the Expanse, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be cutting my TV again, so uh, I'll have to watch it when it comes out on Netflix. So that's a, uh, a lot of inspiration and uh, discussion of the Goetics. I think that uh, we're good for now. Uh, and we now have three different types of spellcasters that are, are quite distinct. You've got the Vance, Vances who are memorizing spells in a traditional D&D sense. We've got the Makers who are building items uh, and investing power within them to accomplish their goals. And we've got the Goetics who by some accounts are cheating because they're just asking other people to do stuff for them. Uh, but this cheating, of course, comes at a cost because people will only do things for them if they enter into a pact. But we see the variety of spellcasting um, within this game. And what orders do we have left, Scott? We've got two more to go. We've got the Weavers, uh, who um, we don't know a lot about, but we will find some way to speculate as to what they are. But they, they will actually weave together and combine the raw source of materials around them in order to create spells. Yeah, I think they're also referred to as the Order of Mixologists. That'll work. I like that. Uh, and then the apostates, who we only know don't follow the rules. Yeah, rules are dumb. <laughs> uh, so we've, we're, we're we're actually past the halfway point through our number through our orders, at least. Well, good job. Nice, nice way to pass the pop quiz. <laughs> and on that, we'll move into our next spell. In reflecting a different truth, we consider common RPG elements or tropes and how to make them more surreal for the invisible sun setting. In this segment, I wanted to tackle something a little less traditional. Previously, we've talked about dragons and orcs uh, and making monsters and adversaries that are surreal versions of common elements in fantasy RPGs. I thought I'd do something different. Instead of a monster, today I want to talk about libraries. How do you make a, a place surreal or a, you know, a, a place that serves a particular function? Our method applies to places just as it does to uh, creatures um, in that we first think about what libraries represent um, and then we'll try to figure out how to exaggerate or subvert those uh, essential elements of a library to create different versions of surreal libraries. So when I talk about libraries, especially in an RPG setting, what what does that come? What does that bring to mind for you? So so for me, libraries represent uh, 
archives of information and knowledge, uh, and they're, depending on the setting, they're massive and ancient. Great. So some, some of the things uh, I was thinking along similar lines, which if we weren't thinking along similar lines, it'd be a really bad subject for this sort of, of segment <laughs> because these are supposed to be common, uh, commonly understood concepts that we're trying to make surreal. So I thought of, you know, these libraries are places we store knowledge. I associate them most often with books, though not exclusively so. These are places that we often prioritize quiet and calmness. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the stereotype of a librarian shushing people if they're being too quiet. That can be part of what we think of as libraries. Uh, and uh, similar to your uh, uh, reference to libraries as being large, I think of them as being labyrinthine, that you've got these long uh, uh, corridors of uh, with books on all sides getting lost in the library. Uh, I taught at a summer camp one year with a, in order to, at a library where they, to save space, they had these moving library shelves. And so they would compress. And if there was no one in the, um, in, in the shelving area, you could kind of crank the shelves together. And that would, like an accordion, compress some of the shelves and open up other shelves. And, you know, I had these, I, I wouldn't say I had nightmares, but I had these peculiar paranoid visions of getting trapped in the shelves as they were, as they were reorganizing and being crushed as someone's accordioning out their uh, shelf to see what they need to see. And I'm stuck in my particular row. So the, you know, to me, libraries have that sense of, of these large corridors of books um, and you know, getting lost within the uh, uh, turning pathways of the stacks. And that gives us those simple associations uh, with a library uh, give us a lot of opportunity to create surreal libraries as uh, an expression of these core concepts. We could start with kind of a simple one, and maybe the least central to a library, uh, the, the shushing librarian. Uh, if quiet is an important aspect of a library, well, maybe we can really exaggerate that by making a library where it is a zone where no noise is possible. So you can't make a sound at all. Uh, this is an exaggerated version of those libraries shushing. You don't even need librarians shushing anybody because librarians have cast a spell so that no one can talk. No one can make any sounds. And the result might be an ideal spot for certain types of, of reflection. So it becomes this perfect point of calm for uh, particular types of internally directed meditation that maybe itself part of a spell or maybe the only way you could possibly comprehend the contents of certain books because any sort of distraction will take you away from your understand it will detract from your understanding of that uh, that tome. But we could really exaggerate the role of quiet as one way to make a library surreal. Now, in order to exaggerate that that tone, uh, exaggerate that aspect of a library, is this something you would drop into like a busy part of Saturnine, just to show that contrast between the busy streets outside? Uh, and the absolute absence of noise in the library? I could see handling it in two different ways. One would be to do that to if I wanted to emphasize the contrast. That you're walking through bustling streets, you pass through a particular arch into the library, and suddenly all sound goes away. 
And that'd be a, a fun sort of contrast. But you could go another direction and say, actually, uh, maybe this is a, that the if you know you need this perfect silence for the meditation of a spell or to uh, meditate on a particular text, then maybe the library is far out in the middle of nowhere, somewhere quite distant, where you have you have to trek, you have to take an odyssey to go so to so remote a location that perfect silence is even possible. Mm-hmm. So it can be the object of a quest as well to find this perfect silence. And I think both those could be fun stories to tell. Yeah, certainly. The The second one is definitely, you know, a setup for a longer journey. Right. And so you know, these are just different stories and different types of surreal uh, uh, libraries. And so this is you know, different reflections of of these exaggerated library characteristics. Uh, a second characteristic we could think of is is the labyrinthine nature of these libraries. Again, uh, it's it, it's already it's it, in my experiences at the library may already have made the it surreal for me. The notion that the library changes shape, in, in my case, it literally did. The, the the shelves moved around, but you could imagine that exaggerated even more to have a library where there is no map because the shelves themselves extend and turn and they become their own maze. This is reminding me of, I think, a book that we've talked about before, House of Leaves. I don't think so. Oh, I thought we talked about it and we had agreed that half of that book is really good. <clears throat> and it's that part of that book that I think would work for this labyrinthine uh, you know, aspect of libraries. Uh, but basically, y- you could go into this library that is larger on the inside. And then as you are trying to find that rare book that you're looking for. Well, you just keep going further and further into the stacks. And that's when you start finding, you know, Hey, this, this library is bigger than it ever could be. It it just keeps going down and it goes deeper and you've got sub levels and, you know, nothing here is labeled and you end up spending, you know, weeks, trying to find this book in the bowels of this library that just continues to grow and become more and more ancient as you go through it. Yeah, we'll stop and make camp here in the JA section. <laughs> yeah, it's better than young adult. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I can see it. And the farther you go in, the more opportunity you have to find the rare and powerful books. The secrets in the library are definitely stored deep in the the in the labyrinth. Yeah, that would be one way to do it. Of course, we've been talking about libraries of books, but in our world, libraries can hold many things. Books, yes, but also microfiche, uh, magazines, um, art, maps. There's all sorts of things they can they can hold. Uh, so we can also. Uh, have libraries that emphasize storing different types of information. And some of them are not very surreal because they have counterparts in our world. But other ways, if we if we change the nature of information storage, uh, we may have a the res- result being a, a surreal library if we're ever going to store that type of information. So one that we have kind of in our world would be a, a library of scrolls. That's not all that unusual. Those exist uh, in our world. Uh, well, they'd I mean, be different. Those are ancient, right? Right, absolutely. And it's not uh, like a so, modern convenience. No, no. But the the physical geography of such a library has to be different. 
Mm-hmm. So you might have stacks and stacks of of uh, I, I, I see, you know of uh, of scrolls, or there there you might have a whole wall of little cylinders. Each of them is being is piled full of of scrolls, and so the research in such a li- library is very different than a research in a book. And there's a reason why most of our libraries focus on books rather than scrolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an example of how you, you change the way information is stored and you have to change the nature of the library, but we can get, we can get more surreal than this. I mean, a, microfiche is, uh, microfiche is pretty surreal. I mean, if you think about it, when's the last time you've looked at microfiche? <laughs> this stuff is crazy. It, it is. It has been a while. Uh, and for some of our listeners, they may have no experience with actually working with microfiche. Um, just imagine the least convenient way to store a book in a photo and you pretty much have microfiche uh, uh, but it's uh, it has it gone the way of the dodo uh, but it was an interesting way to store large amounts of information particularly like like newspapers and things like that um, it was basically a micro photo of a newspaper page or some other resource and then you could have a whole bunch of these micro photos on a single slide and a special viewer that would then re-magnify that image. So it was, again, approximately this, a readable size. Only approximately a readable size. It was never quite readable. Uh, but you know, that, And that was a way to, to overcome the problems of having to store too many newspapers in a small space. Uh, it, did, it was kind of an interesting experience to kind of spin through and explore on this one, you know, the, a, a one film card that was like a, a, a plastic film and scan through it to try to figure out which part of this of this card you wanted to magnify to find just the right page. So it did have its surreal elements, but it was also real. Like that happened and we did that or, or at least it was done to us. It was real, but every time I had to go through microfiche, it was bizarre. <laughs> but we can we can out bizarre even microfiche. <clears throat> yeah, so what else that, we got? Uh, this is a uh, a strange a, a source of inspiration for Invisible Sun. Uh, but some of you may be familiar with the Adult Swim cartoon uh, Metalocalypse. Uh, it tells the story of uh, I, I think of it as the world of Metallica through Metallica's eyes, like how they must think the world is really working <laughs> around them. And it's pretty crazy. We don't need to go into great detail, but one of the parts of this of the story is um, they need to record their next album on the most uh, accurate recording system ever. And if you record to uh, tape, then you have all the imperfections of a physical tape. And mm-hmm. even digital storage is insufficient to really capture the multidimensional complexity and beauty of their music. So, so we're they have about vinyl, then, right? <laughs> um, it, just past vinyl is their technology of storing information in water hmm. that the the acoustics of their album are actually imprinted on a sample of water and so their album is actually in the special container of, of fluid uh and you could imagine that you know that's a different way of storing information. Uh, you could imagine a library where it, the library itself is just a series of, of vials of 
fluids, and each fluid is itself stores information. Now, how you extract that information is an interesting question. <laughs> you might have, uh, get back to our discussion of goetics, maybe each vial has a special a spell or a book, and you basically have to take the vial and, and uh, feed it to a demon who can then tell you what the contents of that book was. Well, I don't see how more than one person can uh, partake in that knowledge if you're drinking that fluid. That's absolutely true, but we might have a whole lot of these vials. Sure. <laughs> it, I, I, there may be a reason this has not been pioneered as a, a realistically working <laughs> way of storing information, but it, that does seem cinematic to me <laughs> and surreal that you, you, you pour the book into a demon's mouth so it can tell it to you. I could see that happening in a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, except uh, inst instead he throws the water up in the air and the bees spell out the words. <laughs> uh, water is pretty abstract, but some where, where there's some degree of historical precedence, and this it's probably used in some fantasy novels as well. Um, some people communicate through a series of knots, where each knot represents a different word based on how it is tied. And so you could have a spell or other secret information stored not in letters on a page or even in Death Clock's secret water uh, imprinting device, but instead it's just a long rope with a series of knots. And you have to learn then how do you interpret the knots in order to decode the message uh, of, what, of that spell or that secret. A library for this might just be a room with a bunch of... of hooks on the wall and each hook has a has a string with knots on it and you've got to find the right string with the right sequence of knots and learn the secret knot language i, I don't want to go to that library man <laughs> <laughs> you've seen that movie you don't want to go there uh no, there wouldn't have to be hooks on the ropes uh and they could be you know friendly <clears throat> sorts of hooks not mean sorts of hooks yeah the friendly hooks group. We can go to a different direction if that's uh, too too uh, hellraisery for you. Uh, maybe, uh, it'd be good maybe. if you're if you're shooting for like an unsettling sort of surrealism. Yes. Oh, and, and if you if you want to avoid hooks, you might just have coils of rope on the ground. That's one and way to you do have it. To uncoil the rope and then read the knots. Uh, but you could go even more abstract and say, I was wondering if you could store information in scent. Can you I'm smell sure it's a... possible. <laughs> in, in Invisible Sun, it is possible. <laughs> uh, well, scent is one of those things that, you know, people always say, like, when you smell something, it triggers your, your deep memories and you're going to remember stuff that you hadn't before. Right. And there's the notion you communicate by pheromones or something, or something like that, or some creatures do. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the, you know, there's, it, this isn't entirely off the wall, uh, but a library of scents would then be interesting. It stores uh, the specific type of information you that you can communicate by scent. So there might be a, a, a little decanter that when you waft the smell, you learn a spell. Nah, you don't do decanters, man. You got to do scratch and sniffs. <laughs> or scratch and sniff that's true uh trademark i don't know um there's all sorts of ways that you might store information uh in the scent itself but i would think that would definitely qualify as a surreal library if it's a mm -hmm. library of colognes oh geez oh so you'd have just magazine inserts <laughs> now that's even more horrific than the hellraiser uh hook uh rope stuff yeah sorry about that 
<laughs> uh, <coughs> we could even stick with books and uh, imagine books that are themselves just sort of re, uh, uh, stored in a way that is surreal and exaggerates some aspect. So if uh, a book that is hard to find or hard to read, maybe the book is easy to see, but hard to read. We could have a book that's heavy to read unless you are prepared to understand its contents. So only people who can understand it can even open the book. Okay. I wasn't sure if you meant heavy as in it was physically heavy or heavy in the Back to the Future sense. Uh, yes and yes. You could okay. do either one. Uh, this is not far off from uh, mild, you know, minor spoilers. There is a book in the most recent half season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where the book itself communicates to people differently, depending upon what languages they know. Hmm. And uh, in you could have something very similar with a book that, again, it you open it, and if you're not prepared for that book, either you can't open it because it is too physically heavy, mm-hmm. or it lets you open it, but it's blank, or it's nonsense, it, unless you have the proper preparation. So that we can combine this with an idea from earlier. Maybe this book is complete nonsense unless you read it in the room of absolute silence. Sure. And only in that room of silence can you understand the patterns that emerge from the nonsense of the book. And that's the only way to reveal the secret of this particular book. Yeah, it's not bad. That would be a uh, good fine. quest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, and we can... Again, playing with libraries finally as stores of knowledge, we can play with what kinds of knowledge. We we store certain types of knowledge in our libraries, but we can think much more broadly in a setting where secrets uh, might even have a physical manifestation. And emotions apparently do because we've got the emotion mills mm-hmm. and uh, dreams may have physical manifestations. So Storing knowledge means something different and a much broader range of subjects in this case. So library has to expand to include that as well. Instead of a, 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 we can imagine a library that has a recording of all forgotten aspirations. So all the things people have ever wanted to do but forgot about, they're recorded in this library. So would those forgotten aspirations include like the thing that you forgot when you walk into a room to do something? Well, I was thinking of that New Year's resolution that you absolutely were going to work out this year, but you just kind of let it go. Is that forgotten (laughs) or is that discarded? It it may be a little bit of both. (laughs) Uh, Maybe a a library that that contains the name of every person who went to that place of perfect silence and when that person will die. So you could go to that place and then know your future well maybe or maybe the time that you will die is incomprehensible to the person who 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 that describes yeah it'd be a real bummer (laughs) (laughs) yeah that sounds like our world sometimes uh instead of a collection of books we could have a library with maps but maybe the maps are maps of all of the lands that people have traveled through in their own dreams. That, that seems to make sense. Uh, I could see that. This seems the least surreal, uh, having just talked about uh, the Blue Sun, which was the realm of dreams. Right. Well, you know, we've, we've really gone far out there on surreal when we're talking about spells recorded as scents. 
Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're pushing the boundaries. Not all of them are going to be that far out. Uh, no, but... no, no. Like, I think it's, um, it, it's not like, it's not, it is surreal, uh, but I think it makes sense in the setting of Invisible Sun that, of course, there is going to be a library that has everybody's land of dreams mapped out. So if you need to get somewhere in this person's, you know, dream state, which, hey, why not? Why not do that? Well, the first thing we should do is probably go to, uh, you know, this library and pick up the appropriate maps so we don't get lost. Absolutely. And there's a lot of different ways you could you could use that. Uh, maybe you you, know, you use that to find something in those lands. Maybe you use it as a way to understand that uh, a person who has those dreams, maybe those maps of their of their dreams reveal something about their true nature or their true name. All sorts of things you could do with that. And the final idea I had for libraries that specialize in different types of knowledge is maybe a library that collects uh, geometric tapestries. So it's, these are just tapestries hanging on a wall. Uh, but the tapestries actually record spells or a specific sequence of hand gestures needed to open a magical porter, portal. So again, you're going, you have to figure out how to read them. It's not just a matter of opening and reading the book. It's, it's, it's similar to saying opening the book and you have to figure out what the language of that book is. But in this case, the, it's the language of the tapestries and the geometric patterns of those tapestries and translating those into hand gestures. But the library is a collection of wall hangings. Yeah, I would be interested to see how you would do something like that in an RPG. Like, how do you how do you turn that into the mechanics of discovering how to impart this knowledge from the library, or how to how to extract it? Right. It's it's much like instead of having a plot that revolves around getting the the key to open the lock to get into the room you want to get into, uh, this plot involves finding the language of the tapestries so that you can understand the tapestries to get the knowledge that's contained in those tapestries. Structurally, mm -hmm. it's very similar. Yeah. But those are all the sorts of ideas on, on, on how we can play with something we think of as being mundane and relatively simple, but fond, you know, that we think of fondly for many of us in the RPG community. We tend to be book sorts of people, library sorts of people. Uh, and you can take even locations like this and make them surreal by exaggerating some essential characteristic that makes a library a library. So make it quieter than quiet and more like a labyrinth than a library is. Make it contain things other than books, but that are similar to books um, or that, that contain knowledge. That's not quite the knowledge we typically contain in libraries, uh, but that again, touches the core of what we think of with a library, uh, but exaggerates and helps us draw into question what a library is and how it is useful uh, in our lives. So identify a characteristic that you want to focus on and exaggerate it to make it more surreal. Yes. Well, uh, that's my big takeaway from these uh, reflecting a different truth sections. And we will we'll keep doing them um, occasionally. If anyone listening wants to recommend uh, a subject, uh, feel free to email us, and we've got that contact information at the at the end of the show. But I would love to hear recommendations on on what we should brainstorm about making uh, surreal in the future. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond 
from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Dr. Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Uh, and if you if you like what you hear, uh, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find our show. Uh, or else, tell a friend about the show, which is another great way to get the word out and get more people listening. 